Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to Frankly Speaking Sports Carolina, right here on WWBG. 1470 AM and Tobacco Road What a great, great show we have for you today. Just unbelievable. You know, I talked about this last week. We talked about the great part of the Super Bowl means baseball is right around the corner. But now it's not around the corner anymore. It's here. It's here. Spring training is here. Pitches and catches have reported. And we're going to talk about that with a very special guest, former Baltimore Oriole great. He's a member of the Baltimore Orioles Hall of Fame. We will be joined by former shortstop Mike Bordick in segment two of our show today. But all the talk this week, all the buildup this week, everything was about this Super Bowl. And whether you like the game or not like the game, you got to admit it was a great Super Bowl game, obviously. The Chiefs prevailing with a late field goal by Harrison Butker. But all the talk, all the drama is about this one holding call, whether it should have been called, whether it should not have been called. And I'm going to tell you right now, folks, if you look at the replay over and over and over again, which I have done, it's a holding penalty. It's not an innocent, it's not an interference penalty. It's a defensive holding penalty. And everybody's taking this one play and making it seem like it changed the whole aspect of this Super Bowl. It did not. It may have been called at a crucial time in the game, but it was not the reason the Chiefs won. The Chiefs won because of a lot of other reasons. And we're going to talk about that right now, right here on Frankly Speaking Sports Carolina on this beautiful Friday afternoon. Folks, let's forget about that call for a moment. That call might have came at a crucial time. But let's remember, Harrison Butker was already in field goal range. Now, would it have been a longer field goal? Obviously, yes, it would have been. It would have been a more difficult field goal. Yes, obviously. But at the end of the day, you're calling that penalty all year long. Why are you going to switch it now? Because it's the Super Bowl? No. You have to call the game just like any other game during the season. I give that referee uh, lots and lots of credit for having the kahunas to make that call, which was the correct call. But it did not cost the Eagles the game. What cost the Eagles the game, you ask? Well, I'm so glad you asked. What cost the Eagles this game, folks, was mistakes and their defense not coming up to play in the second half. I believe Kansas City, if I'm correct, and you folks can check me if you like, I think they scored on every possession they had in the second half. Every possession. Where was that Philadelphia Eagles defense we heard about? It didn't show up. Oh, everybody's talking about Jalen Hurts this, Jalen Hurts that. Oh, what a game by Jalen Hurts. He went 27 of 38, 304 yards, and a touchdown. 
But doesn't anybody remember he had one of the biggest mistakes in this game when he fumbled the ball and Nick Bolton of the Chiefs picked it up and returned it 36 yards for a touchdown? No, everybody forgets that. Oh, my goodness. That made the game 14-14 to and put the Chiefs back in the game. Let's not forget the most valuable play play in that ending of the game was not the penalty. It wasn't even the kick. Well, obviously it was the kick by Butker. You win it. But if right behind that was the great unselfishness of Jarek McKinnon, who was running the ball around the left side. Everybody's dream is to get a Super Bowl touchdown. But this guy, the unselfishness to do what's more important for his team than what is more glorifying for himself came into play, and Jarek McKinnon goes down at the one-yard line and allows the Kansas City Chiefs to run the clock down to eight seconds and win this game. Let's not say and continue to say that this game was won because of a penalty, because that's untrue. That is the furthest thing from the truth. It is because when it came to making the necessary adjustments that need to be made, Eric Bieniemy and Andy Reid did more for that offense making the right calls than the defense did of the Philadelphia Eagles. That's the bottom line, folks. That is the bottom line. And people are forgetting that. They're forgetting the Hurts fumble, the McKinnon play, and some of the other great, great things that happened in this game. Now, it was by far a defensive battle, as we all know. It was an offensive-style game and saw a lot of great things. I mean, you saw how important the pickup of A.J. Brown was for the Eagles in this game. But you also saw why Travis Kelsey is considered the best tight end in all of football. This was two good teams going at it, okay? On this day, the better team won. We can argue whether the Eagles are better, the the Kansas City Chiefs are better, but at the end of the day, the Kansas City Chiefs are the Super Bowl champions because they won this game. Give credit where credit is due. You know, Mahomes, 182 yards, playing on a bum yet leg. But he had three touchdowns for this team in this game. So at the end of the day, you got to give credit where credit is due. And that is the Kansas City Chiefs. But at the end of the day, folks, there's another subject tied in with the Kansas City Chiefs that still baffles a lot of people. Why has Eric Bieniemy, the offensive coordinator, not got a head coach job yet? What is going on? I think he's had four interviews over the last, I don't know how many years, and yet he comes up short on every interview. Now, you know, I said before that, you know, I put a little bit of blame before in previous segments on Andy Reid and him not doing enough to help Eric Bieniemy get to the next level. Uh, You know, obviously there is something during these interviews that the enemy doesn't do well because it's not one team saying no. It's three or four or five or even six teams saying no. 
after the interview, we're not satisfied. There is something Eric Bieniemy is not doing during these interviews that is exciting the owners and general managers of these other ball clubs. I mean, that's the only thing it could be. It's kind of like, you know, everybody in Carolina, the Panthers should get Steve Wilkes. And I was a big Steve Wilkes guy. I wanted Steve Wilkes. But at the end of the day, and it has been told by Scott Fitterer, um, you know, that the reason why Frank Reich got the job over Steve Wilkes wasn't because Steve Wilkes necessarily proved on the field what he did better than Steve Wilkes, because Steve Wilkes did an amazing job on the field. But when it came to the interview and the process that they used to interview, Frank Reich came better prepared for the interview than Steve Wilkes did. He had it figured out who was going to be on his staff, who was going to help him during this process where Frank Reich, excuse me, where Steve Wilkes did not. That has to be the enemy's problem. For all you people that are saying, well, you know, what kind of tree does Andy Reid has? It's a very successful coaching tree. He's on his tree that is now head coaches currently in the NFL. Sean McDermott with the Bills, who has been very, very, very successful. John Harburg of the Ravens, who has been very, very successful. Matt Nagy, who has coached the Bears. Very, very successful, has a winning record. And, of course, Doug Peterson, who took the Eagles to a Super Bowl title and had an unbelievable year so far, his first year in Jacksonville, winning the AFC South. So there is a tree there, and there is a lot of former coaches under Andy Reid that has gotten promoted. So, folks, at the end of the day, there has to be something going on in this interview process with the enemy that we are not finding out. Otherwise, I do not understand why this guy is not a head coach in the NFL. Well, folks, I mentioned at the early part of the show, it's baseball season, and I'm so fired up for baseball. I love this time of year because it's spring is right around the corner. Uh, what, we're 10 days away from the regular season beginning. Lots and lots of great stuff happening in baseball and it all has begun today and when we come back we couldn't think of a better way to start off spring training than having former major league baseball great uh he's a member of the baltimore orioles hall of fame he is the one that replaced cal ripkin at shortstop mike bordick will be joining us right after this message Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to WWBG 1470 AM and Tobacco Road Sports Radio.com. What a great time of year! What a terrific time of year! It's to me the best time of the year. Why? Not because the Super Bowl is finished, but because Major League Baseball is back. 
Pitches and catches are reporting. Players are starting to report. What a great time of year. Ten days until spring training games actually are played. And it is my great honor, thrill, and pleasure to now introduce on the Frankly Speaking Sports Hotline, let's welcome in a uh, former Baltimore Oriole great. Um, he uh, was a 2000 All-Star and member of the Baltimore Orioles Hall of Fame. Let's welcome in Mike Bordick. Mike, how you doing, buddy? I'm doing great, and I love that intro, man, because I feel the same way. I mean, this time of year is awesome. I mean, I, it's so, I think, inspiring because everybody starts on the same page, and you just never know about your hometown team. Mike, let me ask you this. Like we talked about, spring training is starting up. As a player, when you are going to spring training, and I'm talking not necessarily your first year in Major League Baseball, but as a veteran player, when you were going to spring training, what are the things that you as a player wanted to accomplish during spring training? I think getting my timing down, uh, probably the most important thing. And, and really, I think for a lot of guys, especially, you know, in my category, more of that grinding kind of uh, Major League player to get into that grind, to, to feel – you know, the uh, just the work uh, that it's going to take on a daily basis. So I was never one to really shy away. I wanted to jump right in, get the soreness going and out of the way, um, already start getting in my head about at-bats, uh, trying to get my timing down. I wasn't very patient with it. Um, so, you know, I, I probably am different than a lot of guys, I guess. Um, but I, I just wanted to feel like, I was in mid-season form when I left spring training to go through all the ups and downs, the highs and lows, uh, trying to, you know, battle through to get the timing down and, and the rhythm out in the field as well. So I was uh, all in right from the get-go. I wasn't trying to pace myself or anything. And, you know, you bring up a good point, and I was I, I actually segues right into my next question. I was going to ask you, do you think sometimes managers and organizations – sometimes do not set the veteran players up for success due to the fact that they don't play them as much during spring training where they can get that, like you said, timing and rhythm down going into the beginning of the season? I think in some cases, yes. I think every manager, every general manager, the message going into spring training and the hope coming out of spring training is that everybody's healthy. And then you can kind of manage players throughout the course of a long 162-game season. But I do think to some degree they're a little cautious, uh, uh, especially with veteran guys. And, and to some degree, too, it's almost like a rite of passage. If you've got X amount of time under your belt, then you almost psychologically feel like, well, I don't need to play, you know, so many spring training games because I'm a veteran player now. Well, I, I tend to disagree. I think that as each passing year goes by, the more you have to probably try to prepare yourself to make yourself better than you were the year before. And I think a lot of players kind of miss the boat in that regard and then end up kind of shortening their career because they don't take that approach where, you know, you kind of still have to prove yourself every, every I don't even care if you have a multi-year contract, you got to go out there and, and try to prove yourself and make yourself better because that's what professional athletes are supposed to do. 
You know, Mike, you played with four different teams um, during your career. What are some of the most memorable spring training moments for you? Well, I think uh, anytime I was with a, the Major League team, it was always memorable. Um, coming up with the Oakland A's, I don't, I don't know if you remember, I'm sure you do, that uh, – so 1990 was my first year, and the Oakland A's were kind of in the midst of a dynasty. So they had gone to the World Series three year, two years in a row, and they ended up going back in 1990, eventually losing to the Cincinnati Reds. But they had teams just full of superstars, Hall of Fame guys. That it, was, it was just unbelievable to be in the clubhouse with them. Dennis Eckersley, Ricky Henderson, uh, potential Hall of Famers like Jose Canseco, Mark McGuire, Dave Parker. Uh, Dave Stewart, I mean, just an incredible list of great players. Harold Baines, Hall of Famer. So to be able to just sit back, watch them go about their business, uh, hear the, some of the stories they, they would tell about through their careers, um, it was just incredible. And, that, and I really appreciated that. And even coming over to the Orioles in 97, it was much of the same. I mean, Cal Ripken, Rafael Palmero, Robbie Alomar, Brady Anderson, Eric Davis, Jimmy Key, Mike Mussina. I mean, my gosh, these are some of the greatest players of their time, certainly their era, and, and to be able to uh, see them go about their business on a daily basis, not only was it an incredible thrill for me, but I learned so much from, from watching these incredible players. Yeah, now, you know, you talked about Carol Ripken, and it brings up a great point. You know, you signed in 1996 um, – to replace basically at shortstop Hall of Fame um, Cal Ripken. How much extra pressure was on you because you were filling sort of the shoes as far as Baltimore fans were concerned of their legend Cal Ripken, and how was the relationship between you and Cal? Well, I'll start with the relationship. It was great. I mean, Cal was incredible. Uh, I'm telling you right now, he comes as advertised, uh, salt of the earth guy. He and I play catch every day. He kind of embraced the fact that, you know, his ultimate goal was wanting to win as well and have success. So he helped me uh, from day one as far as understanding and learning about the pitching staff, what their tendencies were uh, defensively. Most times I would just play off him at third base because – I mean, he historically was known as one of the most knowledgeable, intellectual baseball players in the game. So, you know, I'd see where he'd position himself at third base, and then I'd just kind of play off him. So uh, it was awesome in that regard, and we're, and we're still, uh, you know, friends today. As a matter of fact, I'm doing an event uh, for his uh, foundation, Cal Ripken Senior Foundation. I'm actually going to be the moderator and interview Cal Ripken and uh, Brooks Robertson. So that's going to wow. be a great thrill. Yeah, so, uh, but as far as, as, as uh, you know, coming in, I, the pressure that I put on uh, was all just myself. It was, it was really my choice to come to Baltimore. I wanted to take on that challenge. I wanted to be part of a winning team again, much like I did as a younger player with the A's. The A's went through a transition, and I was looking for that postseason kind of quality of a team. Uh, the Orioles had gone to the postseason in 96, and they were one play away from making it into uh, the championship series. Of course, the, the catch out there in right field taken away from the Orioles. But um, 
So I was excited about that opportunity. When the season started, spring training was great. Uh, I loved getting to know my teammates. And then when the season started, it was the pressure was all on me. And, and I put about a month and a half of undue pressure, trying to do too much. I could all of a sudden hear the, the, the fans, you know, getting on me in the stands. I just... There's always so much want, I think, to do well, to be accepted by a fan base. And it wasn't until, I guess, uh, like I said, a month and a half into the season that Sam Perlazzo, our infield coach and third base coach, pulled me aside. He said, Bordy, you just got to relax, man. This is your seventh year in the big leagues. Come on, you've done this every day. And, and it just took a different voice instead of me being in my own head to kind of help me relax. And I really did. I settled down. I had a Ended up having a solid year defensively, offensively. I turned it around a little bit. We made it to the postseason. I had some success in the postseason as well. And, and from that moment on, I was just really comfortable playing in Baltimore. I had some of my best offensive years and, and really some of the best years of my career wearing an Orioles uniform. Yeah, you definitely did. And, you know, you talk about being around teams that win. Then in 2000, you traded to the New York Mets. I have two questions for you on that trade. First of all, how surprised were you that you were traded to the Mets? And how much easier is it to get to know your roommates when you step up and on the first pitch you face, you hit a home run? <laughs> That's funny. That was a huge highlight in my career. My gosh, I couldn't even, I couldn't have written that one up any, any better. But I was, I was. Really, I was kind of surprised um, to get traded. Mike Hargrove, the manager of the Orioles at that time, on a daily basis was was kind of reassuring me that I wasn't going anywhere, that he wanted me to be a part of the team, um, to help some of the newer players coming in. I was kind of embracing that role, um, but understood that, that a lot of the veteran guys on the Orioles team were getting moved along, were getting traded. I mean, Will Clark had been traded. Uh, Charles Johnson had been traded. And next thing I know, uh, my answer machine is all lit up when I got home from lunch with my wife. And they're saying, you got to come into the office. He said, come to Sid Thrift's office. And they didn't tell me what had happened. But I told my wife, I said, I think I just got traded. And uh, sure enough, the, the trade happened. Uh, I guess in one uh, sense, it was good because I kind of played myself into a trade. I was having a career year. I had 16 home runs before the All-Star break, so I kind of got noticed in that regard. I ended up making the All-Star team that year, and uh, Ray Ordonez went down with the Mets. So I had an opportunity to uh, play on a championship-caliber team. I was uh, thankful to be a part of that and really help them out. And there again, they had so many great players on that team. Hall of Famer, of course, Mike Pike Piazza leading the way, but uh, – so many awesome pitchers, Hampton, uh, Reed, Al Leiter, and uh, list goes on and on. So it was a lot of fun to be a part of the Mets and be a part of the Subway Series. I wish we could have hoisted the trophy because that fan base is really something special. Yeah, they might get into the booze and, the, and, the, and you know, when you do bad, but I'll tell you what, they love and appreciate their sports teams. The, the fan base rallied around the Mets to help kind of catapult us into the postseason. And uh, it was such a thrill to be a part of that experience, uh, one I'll certainly never forget. Yeah, you talk about that series, obviously, New York versus New York. I mean, everybody in New York roots for that. But I have to ask you this. You had a front row seat, basically, to this 
situation between Roger Clemens with the bat and Matt Piazza. For those of you fans that don't remember, uh, a couple, I don't know, a month or so before, Piazza got hit in the head with a fastball, uh, got knocked down and hurt. What was your whole perspective of what you saw that happened between Clemens and Piazza? Yeah, it was an intense situation, to say the least. I think, yeah, who knows what Roger Clemens was thinking. I mean, you know, you're in the World Series. It's obviously a very intense situation. I think Piazza, like everybody, was very shocked at what had happened. I mean, the broken bat comes back, and it it looks like Piazza. Clemens threw the bat at Mike Piazza, and Piazza stopped in the baseline like, what What just happened? And we were all kind of just thinking, what the heck did he just do? I mean, we're looking in the dugout like, are you serious? Did he just throw the bat at Piazza? And uh, so I, I think there was that initial kind of shock of what happened. Now, kind of hindsight's a little bit twenty twenty, and I think, too, man, we all wish that Piazza would have charged the mound and taken – you know, his frustration out on, on Roger Clemens. And who knows? It might have been something that changed the tide of the World Series. But, you know, Piazza's a good dude. He, he doesn't certainly doesn't want to fight anybody. I think he was in shock, like I said, like all of us. Um, but it was a little – it was surreal, though, the whole situation, especially with the past history that, that Clemens and Piazza had had. You know, Mike, I always wanted to ask you this question because I know you went into coaching afterwards and then now you teach lessons and you have your own uh, baseball warehouse, I believe it is, where you teach youngsters how to do different things in regards to baseball. How much more detailed do you think you are now that you are teaching kids how to hit a baseball or field a baseball than you are actually yourself when you were playing in the major leagues? Uh, yeah, I think much more. It's funny you say that uh, because when you play, you just kind of you just do it athletically. Uh, very rarely do you think about the mechanics and the detail uh, of your movements. But I will say this. There were many times in the minor leagues when we would help out with clinics to help, help kids out that come out to our fields. And a lot of the coaches said that this will help you become a better player because you now you're going to start understanding what you're doing on the field a little bit more detail to the mechanics of you know your defensive skills and understanding the, how to use your legs properly to get down underneath the baseball and see it a little bit better um, and even with hitting the understanding of the mechanics a little bit better so I did have a true appreciation for that and now as, as a coach and helping kids I I just feel like I understand that it's really important to teach properly. You've got to know, you know, the details and the mechanics of a swing, of how to line up defensively, how to anticipate a little bit better. So that part of it's a lot of fun. But to be honest with you, the mechanics is only one aspect. Every kid that I talk to, whether it be an 8-year-old or a 16-year-old, so many of them approach me and talk about the mental side of the game, how to overcome fear, when they step in the box, uh, different techniques to use to make you feel comfortable. Um, so I talk about breathing techniques. I talk about visualization. It's really been fun to cover the whole gamut of the game and then even kind of talk parents uh, about different strategies to use to help build confidence with their kids because, you know, we want kids to play 
uh, as long as they can. We want them to come out and try out for the team next year. And baseball is the most frustrating and disheartening sport you can play. I mean, it's built around failure. So you got to find ways to support and encourage kids uh, to take on these challenges and really be more excited about, you know, the uh, challenges ahead of them in sport because ultimately that's what it comes down to, to build, help build character, teach kids the, the values, the morals in the game, that really help them become better, ultimately better citizens, I think, uh, in the community. Yeah, definitely the mental aspect. I, I mean, I couldn't agree with you more. Guess it's a lot different going up to a player as a hitter saying, I'm going to get a hit that I don't want to make it out. Yeah, yeah, definitely. You so, get that right. Because, I mean, it's, it's uncanny how the mind works. Whatever you say typically will happen. I, I remember time and time again in the minor leagues, if I had a situation with a runner on third base, all we were ever taught was don't hit a ground ball to third base. And so every time I'd step up in there, I'd say, okay, do whatever you do, don't hit a ground ball to third base. And inevitably, I'd hit a <laughs> ground ball to third base. So uh, trying to change that mindset, uh, think about something positive, think about a, a positive process that really help you succeed a little bit more often. couple quick questions before we let you go, Mike. I want to talk about a couple quick rule changes in baseball. Did you think the shift was good for baseball or bad for baseball? Well, I thought it was stupid, to be honest with you, because, okay, go ahead and shift. Well, how about an offensive coordinator or somebody on the offensive side or a general manager saying, okay, if they shift on you, beat the shift. You're right. a league player. Freaking try to hit it the other way. But what happened is we got so caught up in the analytics of the value of a home run that it took all of situational baseball away. And for the longest time, I, I just felt like baseball was a cold game, hot, too many high strikeouts, guys hitting in the shift, everybody just pulling their hair out, going, what is going on? Can't these guys handle the bat? I mean, it was so disheartening to see. So, And, I'm, and I think, though, the game is starting to come back around. I know some rule changes will potentially help that. I still think there are going to be guys now, only because they've just developed this one-dimensional swing, you're still going to see guys with higher strikeouts, but hopefully, you know, it's the guy that, that is considered a home run hitter and, and not the whole lineup. So, uh, yeah, I, I wasn't a big fan of the shift. I think there are some guys that you certainly would do it on, and if guys are, you know, doing it time and time again, absolutely, you got to, you know, overshift is fine. But uh, I was just so frustrated that players wouldn't attempt to try to, try to beat the shift. Um, it, it just was a head-scratcher to me. Is batting average overrated? I personally don't think so. I, I think on base percentage should, is probably exactly. Yep, that. Yep. Hold, yeah, holding more value. So having a good batting eye, I think, is has always been important. But to have a good batting average, I think there's value to it as well. Because what's more disheartening to a starting pitcher than make a guy making a really good pitch and a guy standing up there slapping it the other way for a base hit? Pitcher all of a sudden gets into his own head. It's just back to the mental game of baseball. Gets a little frustrated, might lose concentration, and next guy comes up and pops a two-run home run just because a guy had a good bat and that went the other way. Uh, that's that's what baseball's all about, you know. And I think anytime you can slap out some base hits, it, it's going to have an effect on a pitcher. There's just no doubt about it. Uh, 
walks do too, like guys that get on base. And uh, I, I think uh, even stolen bases could get into a pitcher's head. So bringing back that offensive, more strategic kind of the game, I think is what, what I appreciate. I think a lot of fans do as well. And hopefully with some of these new rule changes, uh, we might see that. Now, as a defensive player who played, you know, shortstop just as well as anybody else, you know, and better, actually, I should say, what would your perspective have been if they had a pitch clock back when you played? Well, I, probably back then I probably would have thought there's no way they can do this because I saw so many starting pitchers that had routines and, you know, in, in my opinion, have the, developing a routine, I think, is crucial to being a good pro. Um, nowadays, I think guys have been trained, especially some of the younger younger guys in the minor leagues to, uh, you know, quicken up their routine uh, to understand how to pitch with a pitch clock. I think it's probably going to be a little bit better for the game. I, I think it's uh, for years they've been trying to find ways to speed it up. So I, I think nowadays the pitch clock does make some sense. I, I think there may be some veteran pitchers that kind of bump that a little bit and are going to just push the limit of the pitch clock, but I think a lot of these young guys, they just get on the rubber. They know what they're doing. They trust their catcher, and off they go. And and to be honest with you, I think uh, one another one of the benefits of analytics is, you know, it, it just seems like they know exactly what they're going to throw every pitch. So there shouldn't be a lot of wasted time. Uh, there again, I'll go back to a veteran pitcher that that just may have a better you know, understanding of the hitter he's facing, uh, just a better gut feeling. So he might take a little more time and shake off uh, a pitch or two, which might kind of get into that pitch clock. But so many of these younger pitchers, younger catchers, they rely wholeheartedly on the analytics that they've been given. So uh, there shouldn't be a lot of wasted time. Last question, Mike, we'll let you run. You know, last year, um, the Orioles had a winning record. They were 83 and 79. Um, for all the Oriole fans that are listening, and we are national here, um, what does this team need to do to get back to being a playoff team? Oh, my goodness. Well, I think just some seasoning for some of their young superstars because they have got a slew of studs. I'm telling you, they've got – some of the greatest young players in all of baseball right now are right here in the Orioles organization. Minor leagues has been rated number one for the last couple of years. Uh, I know the Orioles fans have gone through, you know, the rebuild for the last four years, but man, oh man, it seems like it's, it's going to be worth it because they have stockpiled talent through trades, through high drafts. Uh, we got a taste of, who I think might be a perennial all-star MVP every year candidate, Gunnar Henderson, young third baseman, uh, just all tools all over the place. Great speed, power, uh, adept at defense, just seems to have an incredible understanding of the game. And, of course, Adley Rutschman behind the plate, my opinion, is going to be a gold glover for years to come. Um, it, it's, it always comes down to pitching, though. I can list off a ton of great, uh, defensive players and offensive players that the Orioles have stockpiled, uh, younger guys. But it's going to always come back to the pitching. Are they going to be able to stay healthy like they did last year? Really the only setback they had last year was John Means. 
unfortunately, had Tommy John surgery, but there's a, a great outlook for him coming back this year in July. He probably won't be the same this year, but it's something to look forward to in years to come. Um, they do have an incredible amount of young arms. Kyle Bradish that they got over from a trade. Uh, Kramer, nice right-hander. Uh, Zimmerman, good left-hander. So, you know, there's some pretty good uh, pitching. I would have I think a lot of us were expecting them to maybe make more of a splash on the free agent market with a marquee kind of starting pitcher. Uh, they didn't do that, but they did land a couple guys that are definitely serviceable. I'm, I'm probably better than serviceable. Innings eaters, guys that were very uh, uh, good. Uh, one guy came over from the Oakland A's, Irwin, uh, sub four earned run average, which is hard to do nowadays. So, um, I like where they are. I think they have the opportunity as well with the stockpile of young talent in the minor leagues to work some potential big trades. And uh, even before spring training starts, maybe even during spring training. So I, I think there's a tremendous upside to the Orioles right now and a team to really look at, especially after the su success they had last year. And when you start getting young guys that, that start feeling and tasting that success, really the sky's the limit. Yep. Well, listen, my friend, I want to take, thank you very, very much for taking time out of your schedule to join us on Frankly Speaking Sports Carolina. Well, thanks a lot for having me. And anytime, I love talking shop, that's for sure. All right. Stay safe, my friend. You too. Thank you. All righty. That was the great Baltimore Orioles Hall of Famer. That is Mike Bordick. Let's go ahead. We had a long, long interview there, but it was well worth it. We're going to take a break, and we'll be back right after this. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to Frankly Speaking Sports Carolina. Oh, baby, what an interview. What a great, great interview that was with former great of the Baltimore Orioles, Mike Bordick. Oh, baby, I went a little bit long, but damn, was it sweet and well worth it. I'll tell you what, ladies and gentlemen, I am looking so forward, like I mentioned several times before, for this baseball season. But let's switch gears. Let's switch gears. And I won't necessarily say it's a uh, it's a topic that is thrilling to me right now because what is going on, folks, with our teams in the ACC? You know, I'm getting excited. The NC State Wolfpack were there. They were ranked number 23. They were slowly but surely moving up in the ACC. They had a game versus Syracuse. If they win it, they're in striking distance to Pittsburgh. Yet, what do they do? They lose. They lose. They lose. They lose. They can't lose to a Syracuse team, which they did. They lost to Syracuse. Every Syracuse starter played almost every minute in this game, and they all scored in double-digit points, led by Judas Smith, who had 20 points. But, folks, I say this 
over and over and over again. And people say to me, oh, my goodness, Larry, you know, you're draining this out. But all of these games came down to one thing that cost our teams. You know what it was? It either cost our teams the games or won the teams the games. For NC State, it lost the game for you. You know what it was? Free throws! Free throws, free throws, free throws. NC State fouled Syracuse 19 times. 19 times in this game. What did NC State do? They went to the free throw line and made 16 of 17 free throws. 16 of 17 free throws from the line. They were incredible. Meanwhile, NC State only shot 60% from the free throw line, but they only went there five times, only five times. Not a formula for winning. NC State was atrocious from three, hitting only nine of 34 or 26.5 points. Now, DJ Burns and Jocko Joyner did have 15 points each, but my goodness gracious, folks, here it is, an opportunity. Now NC State moves to 10-6 and six in the conference, 20-7 and seven overall. You know, they are 13-1 at home, but my goodness gracious, what a big, 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 huge loss for NC State. Meanwhile, Duke, I don't know how this team does it. I really don't know how this Duke team, who was 18-8 overall, 9-6 in the conference, finds ways to win games. This Kyle Filipowski is incredible. Had 22 points, no other Duke player. Listen to this, folks. No other Duke player in this game, uh, in this win versus Notre Dame, scored in double figures. But I'll tell you what. Duke didn't win it because of their ability to hit the three. They couldn't hit a three if you gave it to them. They were missing threes left and right. What won the game? Come on, folks. I want to hear you all say it. Free throws. That's right. Free throws. Duke, 13 of 15 from the line, 86.7%. They win the game versus Notre Dame by four, hitting 13 of 15 free throws. 86.7%. Meanwhile, folks, you know, here comes, you know, the most, I, I just don't understand the Tar Heels. The Tar Heels have, and I said it over and over and over and over again, one of the best teams on paper, yet they do not play good basketball. Very inconsistent. The Tar Heels lost to Miami 80-72 to despite R.J. Davis scoring 23 points. Tar Heels, 16.1% from three-point land, 5 of 31. Meanwhile, the Hurricanes, 46.2% hitting 6 of 13. I'll tell you what, this three-guard line of Miami, I've told you all season long, is incredible, incredible. Niger Peck was 4 of 6 from three-pointers, 7-11 field goals, 23 points for the Miami Hurricanes. Meanwhile, Jordan Miller... 24 points, 11 rebounds, 9 of 14 field goals. But I'll tell you what, where was Peter Nance this game? Where was he? He scored two points before fouling out. Amanda Baycott, even though he was out there scoring 12 points, was not apparent. Not apparent. You got to ask yourself, how could a team with this much talent play so inconsistently. And I don't know if you can blame that on Hubert Davis. I mean, 
you know, they're taking shots. The thing with this UNC team is they're not passing the ball around. They're taking shots, sometimes shots they shouldn't take, rather than keeping that ball off the ground and keeping the ball passing from guy to guy to guy and looking for the best shot. They're rushing some shots, not hitting shots. They don't know when to switch it up when you're not hitting from the outside, how to play old school inside basketball. And that was the difference because Miami wasn't hitting necessarily. Yes, they hit six of 13, but they only took 13 three-pointers. They were mixing it up both inside and outside and in between. And that's why they won the game. UNC only had two points. Listen to this, folks. Only two points off the bench. Two points from your bench. You're not going to win. And UNC, once again, very disappointing, very inconsistent, losing to Miami 80-72. to North Carolina now is 16-10. and 16-10 for this team that went to the national title game last year. Nine, what were they? Eight and seven currently in the ACC. Terrible, atrocious, ugly, disgusting, whatever you want to word it. That's a good way to describe UNC so far this year. Meanwhile, Wake Forest squeezes it out versus Georgia Tech, 71-70. Um, you know, this game was a great game. And I'll tell you what, both teams shot great from where? The free throw line. Georgia Tech, 8 of 8. Wake Forest, 19 of 24. 24 times going to the free throw line just shooting just under 80%, I think 79.2. You'll take that. Meanwhile, what can you say about Hildreth? Cameron Hildreth had 19 points. Tyree Appleby had 16 points. Wake Forest moves to 17 and 9 overall. Nine and I'm sorry. Yeah, nine and six in the ACC. So a great, 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 great win by Wake Forest. And I'll tell you what, folks. I don't know what's going on with the ACC. Now it's Pittsburgh leading the conference at a 12 and 3 record, Virginia in second at 11 and 3, Miami 12 and 4, followed by Clemson and NC State. So there's about five games left before we start uh, talking, uh, what is it, Championship Week, then the uh, March Madness 64 teams that make it. We'll see what happens. Going to need some big, big wins down the stretch. For all our teams here locally in the ACC, especially the UNC Tar Heels. Now, before we go, folks, we have a couple minutes left in the show. I want to make sure, you know, Carolina Panthers, you know, doing a lot of things right now in the offseason. And, you know, a lot of people question why Frank Reich got this job and not so much uh, Steve Wilkes. I mean, he's putting together, you got to admit, a heck of a coaching staff right now. I mean, they kept, of course, James Campins, the, uh, what was it? I believe the OL coach. They kept the uh, special teams coach, two important aspects of this team. But look what they added. Parks um, Frazier, passing game coordinator. Josh McCowan, now the quarterback coach. Deuce Daly, we all remember him. Assistant head coach, running backs. Then on defense, you got a Jiro Evriero, defensive coordinator. Don Capers is back. He's a senior defensive assistant. Jim Cardwell, a senior assistant to Frank Reich. And Jonathan Cooley is the secondary and cornerback coach. Still need an offensive coordinator. Don't know who it will be. I'll tell you what. 
I'd love to see the enemy leave KC and come here and prove his worth and maybe capture a head coaching job in the next couple of years. Well, ladies and gentlemen, it's been a fun-filled show. They go quick. It's amazing how fast time goes and how quickly we have to go ahead and wrap up these shows. But another week is in. Football season is over. Um, now it's time for baseball season. Next couple of weeks, we'll try to get you ready for the upcoming baseball season. Maybe we'll talk some Hornets. We'll continue to follow up with the great, great year, the Carolina Hurricanes, I have it, and much more in the sports world. But as far as we go here, folks, we once again want to thank you so much for tuning here on WWBG 1470 AM and, of course, nationally on TobaccoRoadSportsRadio.com. From all of us here at Frankly Speaking Sports, have a great, great weekend. First weekend without football, baby, but baseball is back. And we'll see you again next week right here on Frankly Speaking Sports Carolina.